So tomorrow, my wife Ira and I celebrate our sixth anniversary and enter our seventh year together. Some of you have been married longer than I've been alive, and, and there are those younger than me, but more experienced in marriage, actually. So there should be no shortage of wisdom here. So I have to ask this question. Is there really such a thing as a seven-year itch? Is it true that a committed relationship starts to flag and lose passion over time? For those, who, for those of you who've been married seven times seven, does that struggle happen every seven years? And if so, how do you light the flame again? Do you have to get to know your spouse all over again? Start over. Go back to the vows you made at the altar. I'm sure there are many things you could tell me. And I thought of these things as I thought about God's relationship with Israel and the last book of the Old Testament. They've been together for about 1,000 years, actually technically closer to 1,500. And we know that in this particular relationship, there's only one party who's at fault for all the troubles. And now, what will it take to rekindle that fire? To get to know God all over again. And I think Malachi will help us answer that question. Now, as you turn there, I just want to talk a bit about the setting of the letter. And we go back to about 450 years before Jesus' birth. And there are three major clues that help us land at that point in the timeline. One, as you can see in the Bible, Malachi stands as the last of the 12 minor prophets. And the arrangements, roughly in chronological order. Malachi's among the three post-exilic prophets after Haggai and Zechariah. Post-exilic means we don't go back further than 538 B.C. That's the year Cyrus the king of Persia, permitted the Jews taken in the Babylonian exile to return to Jerusalem. Two, next, looking at the contents, Malachi mentions priests, altar, sacrifices, and the temple. Most likely, the temple has been rebuilt and the Levitical priesthood reinstated. That was made possible through the prophetic ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. So now we can go past 515 B.C., the sixth year of Darius' reign. Three, Malachi addresses circumstances and problems identical or similar to the ones Ezra and Nehemiah faced when they returned to Jerusalem around the mid-400s. All three still operated under the shadow of Persian rule. The word governor in the middle of Malachi 1.8 is Pekah, a Persian title found elsewhere in the Bible, in Ezra and Daniel. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi all opposed intermarriages to idolatrous foreigners. That was such a hair-raising experience that Nehemiah pulled out their hair. Additionally, Malachi and Nehemiah dealt with financial problems as the Levites lacked support and the poor faced oppression. So these are major clues that Malachi was written around 450 B.C. 
addressing the resettled Jews in Jerusalem area. As for Malachi himself, we don't have much information. What we do know is that he uses a unique disputational style. God makes a claim, and his people would get defensive. They would retort eight times. In what way have you done this? In what way have we done that? In what way shall we return? Or what reason for this or that? And if we group them together, we observe some structure. There are six oracles bookended, bookended with introduction and a conclusion. And today we'll look at the introduction and the first oracle. And so let's turn to Malachi chapter 1, 1 to 5. And if you're using your pew Bible, you'll find it, find that passage in page 673. Malachi 1, 1 to 5. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. I could almost imagine a text message thread between God and Israel with God's message in blue or green bubbles on the right and the response of his stubborn people on the left. In the midst of all this back and forth, I observe three truths about God that help us connect or reconnect with him, fall in love with him for the first time or all over again. One, the God of Israel speaks to his people. The God of Israel speaks to his people. That's verse 1. Two, the God of love takes initiative with sinners. The God of love takes initiative with sinners. And this is verse 2, but I call it 2A and B, divided into three parts, the first two parts of the three, 2A and B. And I'll explain that later. Three, the God of power displays his greatness to the world. The God of power displays his greatness to the world. So that's verse 2C, the third part of verse 2, all the way to verse 5. First, the God of Israel speaks to his people. Here's a quick note on the word burden in verse 1. The noun in the original language could come from two verbal ideas, either to bear something or lift up something. I favor the translation oracle more than burden because the emphasis here appears to be an oral presentation, like the way Balaam repeatedly took up his oracles in Numbers. But whether it's called a burden or an oracle, we know that the God of Israel speaks to his people. 
and I'm sorry if this sounds elementary to you, but stop and think and appreciate this truth. God speaks to his people. You won't get far in the Bible without seeing this over and over again, cover to cover. We've been talking about on Fridays just how this world was created in the first place. He utters his voice and brings forth everything from nothing. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then at various times and in various ways, he spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. And he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And the Israelites of all people should know this best. They have a special relationship with God. They were his people. Their leaders and elders heard his voice from the midst of the darkness while Mount Sinai was burning with fire. There's no great nation that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to them, it says in Deuteronomy 4.7. Brother Kerry read early, earlier a summary of all the wonderful privileges they enjoyed, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises that the patriarchs of the past and the Messiah who came from their line. Now, in today's text, that special relationship with Israel's marked by a subtle clue in the lettering. Have you ever wondered why each letter of the title Lords in capital letters? In other places, you'll see God in all caps, too. Is he or are the translators trying to yell at us or something? You know, what's going on? Lord in all capital letters signal to us that this name here is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The word was held sacred by the Jews, and they feared taking that name in vain. So whenever they saw it in the text, they say in its place, Adonai, which means Lord. And out of respect for that tradition, Christians did something similar in their translations. The Lord in all caps indicate that this revered name stands behind it. As for the meaning of the name, Yahweh is a name that emphasizes his self-existence. He can say, I am who I am. He is who he is. And because he's powerful and dependent on nothing outside of himself, he made great promises and he keeps great promises. And he made those promises to Abraham and his descendants. We sang about that earlier, how the creator of the universe has bound himself to be the God of Israel as he swore by himself. And Exodus 6, 2-5 is a key passage. Maybe I'll turn to it. And if you don't have this Bible passage with you, you can have a Bible with you, read it later, but I'll just read Exodus 6, 2-5. It says, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. All caps there. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. 
I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. God of Israel spoke to his people, and he did, he did as he promised. In the rest of the Bible, we see how Yahweh rescues Israel out of Egypt, gives them his laws, and settles them in the promised land. They wasted their privileges, so they turned to idol worship. God punished them by sending them into captivity, into foreign lands. And then in Malachi's time, you see that they return, and they're waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And if you go on to the New Testament, you'll see how Israel rejects Jesus. But the promises he spoke to them still stand. Even as they are enemies of the gospel, concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God did what he said he would do, and he'll continue to do what he said he would do. And as you study that, I hope you respond in love to him. But that could not be possible unless he loved us first. And that leads us to the second truth about God. The God of love takes initiative with sinners. So after the introduction of verse 1, the Lord gets right to the point in verse 2. In that verse, there are three speech acts. The first one's marked by, says the Lord. The second one's marked by the rejoinder of God's people, yet you say. The third one's like the first. It's also marked by, says the Lord in English. But the word says in that third one is actually a noun in the original language, meaning utterance, declaration, or revelation. So let's focus, though, for this point on the initial word of God, and Israel's initial response. He first says, I have loved you. Consider how in a book filled with God's rebuke, and with curses in each chapter, we begin with this affirmation of love. That simple yet profound truth of 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us, is not limited to the New Testament. In any dispensation or time in history, we can always agree with that modern hymn, if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Yet Israel responded, in what way have you loved us? Now to a certain extent, I could understand this sentiment. They did not feel loved by God. The fear of their king no longer paralyzed the surrounding nations. Israel's fame and beauty are now unknown to the world. The foundation and the glory of the second temple could not match Solomon's first temple. When life isn't going well, are we so different? If we're honest with ourselves, it's true that we too question God's love. Lord, why is this happening to me? Don't you love me? Am I not your child? In what way have you loved us? 
Friends, when circumstances scream, God doesn't love me, look to his word. You'll find just the opposite. Here's just a sample of how our triune God takes his initiative to show us his love, especially in tough times. Hebrews tells us that the Father disciplines those he loves. If you're without chastening, then you're illegitimate children. That's in Hebrews 12. Similarly, in Revelation, we learn that if we're lukewarm in our faith and we become proud, Jesus confronts us. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. In Romans, we're taught that at the outcome of tribulation is a hope that does not disappoint. That's because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's in Romans 5. Saints, hear these truths of God who love you, who loves you, who takes initiative with you, and rest assured. Now, for a moment, let me address those who may not understand God's love properly. You may think that you have a relationship with God and it's, it's love because you prayed some prayer when you were little. Or you don't feel that there's anything between you and God. But don't be deceived by your emotions. Let the scriptures tell you your true condition. Isaiah 59, verse 2 to 3 says that your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered muttered perversity. What evils have we done with our hands, our fingers, with our lips and tongues? If God were to turn around and ask you, in what way have you loved me, we'd have nothing to show for it except mistakes, failures, and sins. But the same Bible that tells us we're sinners tells us the good news. God is indeed love. And in this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see how the God of love takes initiative with sinners. He did not wait until we got ourselves together. He acted first. God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Also notice how God's love does not ignore sin, his justice. It does not wave a magic wand over our evil to make it disappear. That word propitiation takes us back to that brutal suffering of the Savior at the cross. He died to satisfy God's righteous requirement. He took upon himself God's wrath in our place. That's love. That's tough love. That's the love that God initiated. Love so amazing, so divine, 
demands my soul, my life, my all. After dying on the cross, Jesus was buried, rose from the grave, and appeared to many before ascending to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. And he made a way for us to join him in glory, to respond to his love in the right way. Instead of questioning him, in what way have you loved us? We are to repent. Repent of our refusal to love him, love others, Turn away from the love of ourselves. Place your trust in Jesus Christ alone. And this offer of eternal life is given through grace. It is a gift, not of works, so that no one can boast. We do not boast in our works, but there is something else we boast in. The scriptures tell us, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And that leads us to the third truth about God. The God of power displays his greatness to the world. So before I speak of his power, I must say the God of Israel and the God of love, he really is the God of patience. He actually takes time to answer Israel's ridiculous question, in what way have you loved us? Now, let me reread from the third part of verse 2 to the end. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, it's easy to see why this passage is a good place to park, discuss God's sovereignty, his election of Israel, his judgment of those outside of his will. But I want to begin with the big overarching practical idea. The big idea is that ultimately, God wants us to look beyond the salvation of one people, of yourself, or just one person or one people group. Look beyond that to his glory in the entire world. And here's why I think that's the big picture. You saw in the middle of verse 2, the grumbling and complaining of Israel. In what way have you loved us? By the time we get to the end of verse 5, that grumbling and complaining have turned into exalting and worshiping. They will say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. A cold response to God's love has turned into a fiery praise of God's power. Have you thought about where your passion for the Lord went? Is it possible that not only have you started doubting God's love for you, but you also started thinking that your salvation, your blessings, your ticket to heaven, your rewards in heaven, that's all there's to it. It's about me, 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 us, us, us. The Lord's desire is to be great, not only in your life, but far above and beyond you. 
past our circles, across the fences. We must make it our life mission to say the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. But ultimately, God displays his greatness to the world with his own power in the coming judgment. It will be plain and obvious those whom the Lord has favored. And that brings into discussion a specific neighboring nation, Edom. Let me provide some historical background of Edom and its intertwined history with Israel. So much of this will probably be a review for you, but I think it's necessary to talk about it. This relationship and rivalry goes back to Genesis, all the way back to Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah. Their twin sons, Jacob and Esau, were fighting since they were together in their mother's womb. God made clear to Rebekah his purposes for them in Genesis 25-23. Two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Esau was the older and Jacob was the younger. Both had character flaws, but Esau had the worst of them all. He despised his birthright and sold it to Jacob for one morsel of food. It was because of that red stew and his natural ruddy complexion that he be called Edom, which means red. Now, note to self, don't make important life decisions on an empty stomach. That's what, that's what Esau did. Though Isaac insisted on Esau receiving the firstborn blessings, it went to Jacob by God's sovereign design. Jacob's trickery infuriated Esau, and so he fled home. But God was with him, and he eventually became Israel, the father of the 12 tribes. Meanwhile, you see in Genesis 36, Esau's genealogy. He married wives from the land of Canaan and moved to Mansir, southeast of Judea. Esau's descendants eventually conquered the Horites in the region and dispossessed them. They benefited greatly from the international trade as they occupied a strategic route from Syria to Egypt. They were also secure from foreign invasions as the surrounding rocky terrains provided them with natural defenses. But as a neighboring nation to the Israelites, they were opportunistic and hostile. That's why God condemned Edom in eight different Old Testament books, more than any other foreign nation. Around the time of Malachi, the Nabataeans and Arabian tribe they occupied Edom and forced the inhabitants westward toward a desert area named Idumea. It was a humiliating experience for Esau's descendants. But it was not the end. There will be more attempts to build and rebuild it, as the passage tells us. But we also find that there's a greater judgment coming as the Lord of the angelic armies will come against them. In that day, all will know that God favors Israel over Edom. Now all this talk of hating Esau, indignation, laying waste their land, sounds very harsh and unloving, doesn't it? Doesn't God love everyone, the whole world? 
Well, just as we have wrong ideas about God's love, we have wrong ideas about God's hate. And I just want to talk about three misunderstandings about God's love and hate. Misunderstanding number one, to set the stage. Some say God hates the sin and loves the sinner. I have to disagree. Psalm 5.5 says this about God. Not me. This is what the Bible says. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. Later in Psalm 11, verse 5, we find, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Proverbs lists among the six things the Lord hates, a false witness who speaks lies. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. In the same vein, it's plain and clear that God hated Esau because he displeased God. There's no getting around it. Here's another misunderstanding about God's love and hate. God loves and hates someone just like the way humans love and hate someone. Now, of course, there is some parallel. We are, after all, made in God's image. Also, God's not a robot. He has zeal, and his sympathy stirs for his people. But the way he loves and hates is never out of control, out of line with his justice, with his perfect ways. It's never unfair, as we see so often in our human context. And properly defined, God's love and hate in this context is about the choice of one over the other for a covenantal relationship. And we talked a little bit about the covenant earlier. And we see a hint of this when Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. The Lord also said in Luke 14, 26, anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, these are not commands to develop ill feelings or wrathful passions against certain people. God's not telling us to be nasty to your family members and, or burn all your cash. Right? To hate and to love is to choose one over another. It's like how in a wedding The groom and the bride are asked to vow, forsaking all others as long as they both shall live. In the same way, God has vowed that Israel will be his special people. Here's a third misunderstanding about God's love and hate, and it goes back to the gospel. This is the misunderstanding. If God hates the sinner, there's no hope of becoming his beloved. This is wrong. Biblically speaking, God's choice does not eliminate your choice. Consider how Rahab of Jericho, Ruth the Moabite, Uriah the Hittite, found the Lord and joined Israel. Sinners can become saints and join the church. And individual Edomites could have read these words of Malachi 
repent and flee their land and become God's people by faith. The Lord desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Sadly, not everyone will make that right choice. But for those who do, their eyes will see God's just ways and say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Someday the God of power will display his greatness to the world and will say to one another, as David said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. There's a lot more I could say, but let's think about that day that's coming. And let's meditate on today's last hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. It's a great reminder how privileged we are to be loved, to call our Father the God of Israel, the God of love, the God of power. It's also a reminder to be faithful to the Great Commission and proclaim his word to the lost. Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are not a distant God. That you are someone who took the initiative. You are the one who speaks to us through your word. You display your glory so that we may glorify you. And we thank you that you made this possible through your son, Jesus Christ. And though it may be difficult to understand all your purposes, all your secret plans, all your sovereignty and foreknowledge, these are beyond us. Lord, we know that we can be in a love relationship with you through repentance and faith. Pray that you will work in the hearts of those who have not made that decision. Lord, we pray that we would think of your love this week how you have loved us, and think of all the ways you have loved us, all the ways you have chosen us and given us these wonderful blessings. And Lord, may that drive us to share the truth with others so that they too can glorify you and magnify you. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.